0: Last week, as we continued through the scriptures from beginning to end this year, we, we looked at one of the best-known stories in the life of David. And of course, that was the story of David and Goliath. And we, we showed how in that story... David was a type of Christ, going against the the giant. Of course, it was a Philistine giant, nine foot six inches tall. I uh, have 125 pounds of armor and 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 uh, weaponry with with him. Uh, I did a, a quick study on this, and many theologians believe that Goliath was well over 300 pounds. May have been pushing 400 pounds of nothing but muscle. You know, I talked about uh, Manute Bowl, the seven foot seven tallest man to ever play in the NBA. He was only 180 pounds. I mean, he was like a twig, like a stiff breeze would blow him over. Goliath's like a tank. And he's just this massive, muscular warrior trained to destroy. And nobody in the nation of Israel wanted to fight him. And that's who we were. We were the cowardly nation of Israel, too scared to go up and fight against this giant. And David, as a type of Christ, comes in, nobody expected him to. He's a little, you know, redheaded kid. He's a shepherd. He's, his his father even says he's insignificant. But David steps up and does for Israel what they could not do, just like Jesus came unassuming and he stepped up and he did for us what we can never do by defeating the giant of death and hell and the grave when he came and lived a perfectly sinless life and died in our place and was buried and rose again to redeem us to God the Father. It's just a great story showing how David, as a type of Christ, and how Jesus did for us what we could not do. The story we're going to look at today doesn't put David in the best light. You know, there's, there's a lot of stories in the, the, the Bible, you know, between 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, even chronicles about David, great stories. Stories of David's victories and David conquering hero, conquering enemies and God being with him and just stories of David's character. I mean, we see before this, we see the story of David and Saul where Saul realizes that David has been anointed king and David hasn't done anything to, you know, let Saul know. He's not come in saying, hey, I'm the next king. Your days are numbered. He's just playing the harp, trying to soothe the king, but... Saul realizes that he's the next king, and so that means Saul has to die, so he tries to kill David, then spends 10 years chasing David in the wilderness, chasing David's mighty men, and trying to kill David, and David has a couple chances to kill Saul, but he doesn't. Because he says, you know, he, right now he's still God's anointed, and it's not my place to Stand in the place of God. God will do with Saul what God wants to do in God's timetable. So I'm not going to touch him. So it shows great character. I mean, look, I don't know about you, but if someone's trying to kill me, like actively kill me, and I have, I'm running for my life, hiding in caves, and I get a chance to kill that guy, that guy's dead. But David's like, no, that, that's that's God's anointing. I'm not going to touch him. So it shows great character. Great restraint, great trust in God. Wonderful stories. And then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to look at one of the most tragic stories in the Bible, the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, As we go through the Bible, this story is important because it shows us our need for a messiah it reminds us, our hope is not in some earthly king. Our hope is not in a political party or a political figure or a political movement. Our hope is in nothing that this world has to offer. Our hope comes from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords only because everything on this earth is going to disappoint us. Everything on this earth is going to disappoint us. You know, I've one of my favorite presidents to read about is Ronald Reagan. I love reading some of the stories about him and his biographies and other people write about him. I just, I've got several of them. I've read them several times. But the, the more I read about him from other sources, the more I realize, you know, he was a great president, but he was flawed. He had some issues. They all do. You know why? Because they're human. Because they're men. They're never going to be what we need them to be or what we're looking for. Our only hope comes from God alone. We need something better. We need someone better to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. But it also gives us a very important warning. Sin will destroy your life. Nobody can play with it. Nobody can try to hide it. Sin will destroy you. We're going to see how sin destroys our relationship with God and how no one is immune from the consequences or the temptation of sin, even the man after God's own heart. Now at this point in the story, David's Finally, king over Israel, Saul has pursued him for ten years, and Saul's been killed in battle. And during during Saul's reign and Saul's kind of obsession with killing David, I mean, he's he's led the nation of Israel into a civil war where Judah and 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 Israel have kind of split up, and they've they've divided and they're fighting each other. One's kind of for David, the other's for Saul, and so there's a civil war going on. The Philistines have come in and have captured the Ark of the Covenant and taken it away from Jerusalem. So now the country is divided. They don't even have the presence of God with them anymore. And Saul has just taken the nation deeper and deeper into just wickedness and depravity. And he's finally, eventually he is killed in battle. David becomes king of Judah. He eventually reunites the country and becomes the king over all of Israel. He recaptures the ark and brings it back home to Jerusalem and puts it back in the tabernacle. I mean, he's doing great things. He's reunited the country. He's kind of bringing peace and prosperity. David, even after this story, David is still considered the greatest king in the entire history of the nation of Israel. Every king after David is judged by David. Every king. You read the, the the history of Israel. It's like, oh, this king was a good king. He was a godly king, like the like the king David, or he was a wicked king, not like David. They're all compared to David. So David, I mean, he's he's an all-time high in his walk with God and his relationship with the people. I mean, he's just He's everything's going right for David, everything's perfect, but then something happens. Look at Second Samuel chapter eleven, verse number one. <clears throat> and it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Amnon. And besieged Rehob, but David carried still at Jerusalem. Now, when you read that verse, you'll probably think of the same thing I'm thinking when I first read it: Why are they scheduling their wars? Seems a little weird to say, "Hey, uh, let me pinch you down for July. We'll attack you." But you know, I got I got vacation in August. We are going to be done by then. But here, here's what it was: they, It wasn't like they scheduled a war, like, "Hey, let's let's fight next week." It's they were in a battle with the Ammonites. They were always in a battle with the Ammonites. So I was trying to invade. But during this time, you didn't fight in the wintertime. The weather was too bad. It made it difficult for armies to move and for battles to happen. And so both sides would agree, hey, when the weather gets bad, we'll just stop. We'll stop attacking you. You stop attacking us. We'll just camp where we're at. And then when the weather gets good, we'll pick up where we left off. And so it was weird, but during the wintertime, the kings and leaders would go home. The armies would kind of stay on the field. And so it's getting the time where the battle's about to start ramping up. And David, as the king of Israel, is also the warrior leader. David should leave Jerusalem, go to the battlefield, and lead the nation in battle. But he doesn't. He sends Joab instead. Now, Joab's a perfectly capable military leader. He's, you know, the general, and he's perfectly capable of doing the job that David has for him, but it's not Joab's job. It's David's job. And David should have gone to to the battle, but he didn't. He stays back home in Jerusalem. So for the first time... In the history of David as king, he's not leading his men into battle. He's staying home and he's relaxing. David has disengaged from the battle. He feels like he doesn't need to be involved. It's not that important that he be there. So he's disengaged from the battle and he's staying home, relaxing. And that is where sin begins to take hold in David's heart. See, when our lives lack purpose, when our lives lack meaning or direction, and we look for something to fulfill us. We look for something to grab our attention, to distract us, to bring excitement to our lives, to to give us an adventure. Now, David had an adventure. He could have gone to war. He could have led the people in battle, but he didn't feel like it was necessary, so he decided to stay home and do something else. He let his guard down, and the enemy struck. Look at verse number 2. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. So not only is David disengaged from the battle, but he is in a place where he can be tempted. Where temptation is right around the corner for him. He's bored, so he's up on the roof, strolling around, looking for something to catch his attention, and something does. This is the equivalent of Browsing the internet alone at night, just clicking through, maybe on your smartphone in your room. You're bored. You're just looking for something to grab your attention. I guarantee you, if you do that, something's going to grab your attention. Something's going to catch your eye, and you're going to end up being tempted to do something you may not have ever thought you were going to do. Now, look, when I'm talking about sin here, I'm going to we're talking about a lot. We're gonna talk a lot about sin. All right, so. If you're like, I didn't come here about sin, sorry, come back next week, Uh, but you're here now. So we're going to go, and this applies to all sin, but it's, I'm really going to focus on sexual sin because that's the most devastating. The Bible even says so. The Bible says the adulterer receives a mark. The Bible says sexual sin will lead, will get you out of things that possibilities and opportunities you could have had. You know, David's look, if here, let me just put it on you, because this is, let's put it on the, a way you can understand. This week, I went to Harbor Freight, and I bought some toolboxes, because I needed toolboxes, because my tools were scattered everywhere, and all kinds of bags, and Tubs and stuff. So I, I need to gather my tools. So I went and I gathered some tools, and I, I got my toolboxes. April came home. She saw my toolboxes. She said, "Did you buy new toolboxes?" I could have said, "No, I've had them for a while." Right? I could have. I didn't. I said, "Yeah, I need toolboxes. I got four of them for twenty-five bucks. I love Harbor Freight. It's cheap, but it's okay." So I, I could have said, "No, no, no. I've had these forever. They've just been in the shed, and I didn't, you know, I forgot about them. And I, you know, I, I, I could have lied." If I had lied, would that have been a sin? Can we agree with that? Right? That's a sin. In the eyes of God, that's, that's what hung Jesus on the cross. Now, another scenario, and again, this did not happen, but I'm, I come home real late on a Friday, like two in the morning, I come home. Neighbor's like, uh, where the heck you been? And, you know, I, I admit to her, I had an affair. I was honest, but I had an affair. Is that a sin? Yes, that's a sin, folks. like, well, well, you told the truth about it, no. So I have an affair, that's a sin. Now, what is more damaging to my relationship with April? The fact that I lied to her about a couple of toolboxes, or the fact that I cheated on her? The fact that I cheated on her, yeah. I lied to her about a couple of toolboxes and I tell y'all, I lied to April, I told her I didn't buy a toolbox that I did. Y'all are probably going to say, oh, well, that was stupid, don't do it again. I show up Sunday and said I cheated on my wife, but I told her about it. Y'all are looking for a new pastor. Am I right? Okay, I didn't get enough amens on that one. Amen, yeah, okay. I'm not going to do it. I'm just saying. Sin is sin. Some sins have a lot more damage done to, the, to, to your life and everything, and sexual sins are the worst. And David said, David's not lying about toolboxes. David's committing sexual sin, and it ruins his life. So that's what we're going to be focusing on here. So he's bored, he's on the roof, it's like he's clicking around, finding something to, to catch his attention, and he does. Now look at verse number 3. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said... Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. Number one, God's given him a way out. He's been tempted, but he hasn't sinned yet. He's put himself in a position he shouldn't be at. He's not where he should be. He's at a place where he's being tempted but he hasn't sinned the pop up has come up and said hey click here for you know sexy pictures but he hasn't clicked it yet he's being tempted and god's given him a way out whenever we are tempted to sin God always gives us a way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation taken you, but such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. See, whenever you're tempted to sin, God always gives you an escape. What that means... You never fall into sin. I hate that word. I hate that phrase. You know, people will talk. Oh, did you hear about so and so? They fell into sin. No, they didn't. They chose to sin. Falling into sin is I'm just walking around, minding my own business, and oop, I, I had no idea what I was doing. I just found myself in a pit of sin. No, no, no. When you sin, God gives you a way to not sin. You choose to sin. So it's not a I made a mistake. It's not a, it was an accident. No, I made a conscious decision to sin against God. No matter what the sin is, whether it's lying about toolboxes or commit adultery, looking no matter what the sin is, God always gives you a way to escape. You do not have to sin. You choose to sin. And David is making a conscious decision to sin. He is making a conscious decision to violate God's commandment. But there's another reason this verse is in here. David isn't being tempted to lie or to steal. He's being tempted to commit adultery. He's being tempted for bisexual sin. And God reminds him, that woman you're lusting after, she's not just some object. She's someone's daughter. She's someone's wife. I mean, look at it again, verse 3. And David said inquired, and they said, In this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. They never say that before. She's a, she's a married woman. They would never say, Oh, that's so-and-so's daughter. They would say, Oh, that's that's Uriah's wife, which is bad enough. But he's being reminded, hey, that woman you're lusting after, that's someone's little girl. That's someone's wife that you are turning into an Object. You know, sexual sin, lust, always objectifies someone. They, be, they stop being a person and they become an object of your pleasure and your desire. And you don't care about, your, about their lives. That girl that you're looking at on the internet, someone's daughter, someone's wife. Someone's mother. How would you feel if that was your daughter, your wife, your mother? But we don't get, because it's just a picture. No, it's not. It's a soul that Jesus died for, and you're objectifying for your pleasure. That man you're flirting with, and look, I'm not just going to pick on men here. I'm going to get some of you ladies, too. Because look, pornography and sexual sin is not just a male-only thing. I'm going to give you all some statistics in a bit that probably will shock you but shouldn't. But it's not just the Now, men may be more guilty of sitting on the computer watching the, the thing happen, while women maybe get their, their stuff in other ways, maybe romance novels or other things. But we're all guilty. So don't be sitting there, ladies, thinking, he's picking on them. No, I'm going to get you too. That guy you're flirting with, that guy you're lusting after, that's somebody's husband. That's somebody's little boy. It's not an object for your pleasure. They're a person that Jesus loves. See, lust makes you stop thinking of people as people, and instead they become objects that can bring you pleasure. Now, look, I've always been honest with you about my struggles. I've never been one of these preachers that get up here and like, I've never messed up. I have messed up more than you would ever imagine. You know, that that song, Sinner Saved by Grace? I pick on John because I hate him. I'm not a sinner saved by grace. I'm a saint. But, you know, it says, if you could see where I once was, if you could go with me back to where I started from, then I know that you would see that I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Look, if you could go back to where I came from and seen everything I've done, you would not be here. I know that because I'm shocked I'm even here. So I've never, like, tried to sugarcoat it or, I let y'all know, I'm just a broken man trying to follow a perfect savior. Why don't you follow him with me? One of the struggles I used to struggle with for years was I struggled with pornography. I was introduced to it at, at like 10 years old. And it, 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 it scarred me. And it scars everybody. No one should be introduced. But anyway, so I, I struggled for years with addiction to pornography it hurt me in April it hurt my relationship with God I tried everything and I you know I I do fall into fault not fall into it I'd make a conscious choice to go down that path I'd get convicted or I'd get or I'd get caught and I'd feel bad I would apologize I'm never gonna do it again but I would do it again eventually I, I got control of it and I was able to conquer it Mainly thanks to April and prayer and a program that I think everybody should have called Covenant Eyes. Covenant Eyes is an internet filtering program that you put it on your phones, your tablets, your your computers. It runs in the background. But not only if I try to Google something I shouldn't be looking at, not only does it block it, it sends her an email. She gets an email. Hey, your husband tried to look at something he shouldn't look at. Now, sometimes it's a little frustrating because it's like your husband tried to look at something with hell in it, and I was just trying to do a sermon prep or something. I'm like, look look at the website. It's like how not to go to hell dot com. But it's so it could get a little frustrating, but that that and that's one of the, that's when Jesus says, pluck out your eye and cause you sin. I was plucking out my eyes. Like this, this is something I can't handle. So here's something that's going to help me handle it. That's going to keep me from being tempted. So I used that for years. But you know what broke the desire to even go down that road? I had a daughter. And I realized every girl I would objectify was somebody's little girl. Behind every picture is a broken-hearted daddy. And I would respect him too much to objectify his little... Because if he ever did that to my little girl, oh, I'd kill him. But I can't be like, oh, you do that to my girl, I'm going to kill you, but I'm going to look at everybody else's little girl. No, you can't do that. So the greatest thing to help me was I had a daughter Realize, you know what, if that ever happened to my daughter, and I'm not saying it can't, but if that ever happened, I would be heartbroken and murderous to want to kill anyone who tried to objectify her because she's not a picture she's my girl and no one's going to do that so behind every image put yourself before you click that next time put yourself in her daddy's shoes say how does he feel right now Well, let's keep going look at verse number four and david sent messengers and took her and she came into him and he lay with her for she was purified from her uncleanness and she returned into her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. So David, he gets his way out. Hey, yeah, David, that girl you were asking about, that's, that's Elam's daughter. That's, that's Uriah's wife. She's not available to you. Here's your way out. I don't care. Bring her anyway. He doesn't care about what's happening. He, he wants to do what he wants to do. So he, he has her brought to him. They, they, do, they have their affair. She goes home, then sends a note saying, hey, David, uh, I'm pregnant. Now David goes into cover-up mode. He has Uriah, her husband, come home from the battlefield. He sends a letter to Joab. Hey, Joab, send Uriah to tell me what's going on. Uriah was not a messenger. He was nowhere near. But he says, hey, send Uriah. It's come to him and what's happening. Now Uriah has been at battle for a while, probably a year he's been away from home. So David figures, he's been gone for a year or more. He's going to come home, he gets to give me a report and he's going to go home and see his wife and it's okay because a soldier going away for a while seeing his wife, they're going to do what husbands and wives do and he'll think it's his kid, I'm good. So Uriah comes home, he, he gives him the report and then look at verse number 18, verse number 8. And David said unto Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. Now, here's what happened. David says, Hey, Uriah, thanks for the report. Why don't you go home and have a nice romantic meal with your wife? Here's a good dinner. Y'all just, y'all have a nice romantic meal together. And he figures, it's all taken care of. No one's ever going to know. But Uriah doesn't go home. He refuses to go home. And look where he says why. Look at verse number 11. And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife as thou livest? And as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. So imagine how convicting this is for David when he's the next morning he's like, Hey, did you go home and see your wife? No, I didn't. I camped out in the courtyard. Why? And he says, look, I'm not going to enjoy my home. I'm not going to enjoy my bed. I'm not going to enjoy my wife well, my fellow soldiers are still in danger. That's I can't do that to them. But David, he's got all his soldiers in danger, and he's enjoying everybody's wife. Imagine how convicting that was to David. But David isn't done yet. He figures, okay, we'll just stay here one more night. And then this night, he figures, I know, I, I, I know how to do it. I'll get him drunk. So he gets him really drunk and sends him home. Because he figures, you know, your conviction's... Lowered when you're drunk and you're at home. So he figures this is going to take care of it. Even if he doesn't, you know, go through with it, he's drunk. He's going to forget. He can just think he maybe he had, you know, had relations with his wife and his baby, whatever. But he's too drunk. He passes out in the courtyard and everyone sees him. So everyone knows you're right and go home. So now David's got to come up with Plan C. And here's what he does. Look at verse number 14. <clears throat> and it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So he's sending this letter to Joab, the general. Uriah's the one carrying it. And he wrote the letter saying, set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. Uriah delivers his own death sentence to Joab. Joab opens it up and it says, put Uriah in the hottest battle, and then pull back and let him be killed. He is murdering this man to cover up his sin. So Joab, he obeys David's command. And If you read the story, we're only going to do it for time, but he, he sends a, the, the, one of his regiments to this hottest part of the city, and it's a slaughter. Uriah is not the only one killed, Hundreds of men are killed and Joab sends a report back to David and he figures, well, David's going to be real mad thinking I sent a, you know, a couple hundred men to their death. And so when David gets real mad, just tell him, hey, by the way, Uriah's is dead too. So David, oh, okay, well, you did what you're supposed to do. So Joab, he, he sends this, has this happen and the whole, the, the whole regiment is killed. So hundreds of men have died to cover up David's sin. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the the great shepherd. David, the, the one who gave us the Psalms. David, the giant slayer. David is murdering men to cover his sin. Look at verse number 26. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the mourning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So the mourning period for a loss of a family member was anywhere between seven to forty days, depending on who it was. Like if a parent died, you would sit Shiva for seven days, then bury him and be mourning be over. But if a spouse died, you were supposed to mourn forty days, but you could mourn less. You could mourn seven. So David, because, remember, she's pregnant, time's a ticking. She mourns seven days for her dead husband. As soon as that seven day's up, David marries her. Everybody assumes, well, she must have got pregnant on the honeymoon. So he, he thinks that everything is over. His sin is covered. No one's going to know. But the verse, that chapter ends, but the thing that David had done... Displeased the Lord. This is a turning point in David's life. Up to now, his life's been pretty good. He's had battles, but he's been victorious. He's adored by Israel. God's blessed him in, in many wonderful ways, and that all ends here. The rest of David's story he watches his family fall apart. The son he has with Bathsheba, he dies. Now, he has another kid with her, but this son, we don't even know his name, he dies. One of his other sons rapes his daughter. Then David lets him get away with it. so another son kills the rapist's brother. He should have. But so now he's got a dead baby, a murdered son, A raped daughter and the son who killed the rapist, he rises up an army to try to overthrow his own father and he's killed in the battle. David's family is destroyed. So what does this teach us? We're going to get to the rest of the story in a minute, but here's what this teaches. Number one, sin always destroys your life. Throughout the Bible, God tells us sin is destructive. He tells Adam and Eve, the day you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. Not the day you commit adultery or this great the day you disobey my command. No matter how frivolous it may seem, the day you disobey me, death is going to come to you. Now, they didn't die physically immediately, but they immediately suffered death. Their fellowship with God died. Their innocence with each other died. Up to this point, they're open with each other, and naked and unashamed. I've told you it doesn't have to do with clothes, but they're they're open and honest with each other. Now they're covering up. Now they're hiding things from each other. Now they're hiding things from God. Their relationship is broken. They lost the innocence they had. They lost the the, the openness they had. They lost the good life in the garden and had to start fighting nature just to survive. They lost the peace that they had. You know, Proverbs 16 tells us there's a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Sin always brings death. You cannot play with sin and come out unscathed any more than you can play with gravity by jumping off a skyscraper without a parachute and hope to walk away. They're both going to destroy you. Sin, all sin, brings death death of trust, death of dreams. Death of relationships, death of possibilities, and worst of all, death of your fellowship with God. Sin destroys. Second thing it teaches us, not only does sin destroy your life, number two, don't quit on the battle. Don't ever stop fighting. David thought he could stop fighting for a while, and it led him to be destroyed. For a lot of us, it isn't a lustful spirit that leads us to sin. It's a bored spirit. You're bored and you're looking for something. The problem is, we usually find that something in sin and it leads us to a place we never thought we ever would have been. You know, the best way to keep boredom at bay? Stay engaged in the battle. I'm not talking about just at home, you're like, I'm bored, what can I go do? Go mow the grass, or something. But when you're, you're bored in your relationship with God because you think, I've got it in control. Now look, I, again, it has been a decade or more since I've really seriously struggled with pornography. I, again, had covenant eyes, and then I just, God just broke my desire for it. So you know what? I don't need covenant eyes anymore. No, I'm not stupid because I know I don't have the desire now, but the enemy's always waiting to see, hey, let's see if he lets his guard down. Let's see if he allows himself some unfiltered access late at night. No big deal. We'll just send a pop-up. It'll be okay. I have to stay in, in the battle. I have to keep fighting. So Someone who's an alcoholic, they can't say, well, I've been, I, haven't been, you know, I've, I haven't had a drink in 20 years. I guess now I can have a couple. No, you can't. You have to guard yourself. Never get out of the battle. There are always laws to be witnessed to. There's always believers to be encouraged and discipled. There is always a work to do for God. You find yourself bored? Get involved in a growth group. Join a Sunday school class. Invest in the next generation. We are at war, and until we see Jesus Christ face to face, it is never time to let down your guard. Our enemy is constantly circling us, looking for weakness. The Bible says he's like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, seeking how he can destroy you. That's how Paul says we've got to put on the whole armor of God. He doesn't say, put on the pieces you think you need. Put on the whole armor of God. Don't disengage from the battle. Stay alert. Stay active. Stay involved in the work. Here's the third thing. Number three, keep away from temptation. It's easier to avoid temptation than to resist it. It's easier to avoid even being tempted than to say, well, it's okay if I'm tempted. I'm going to resist the temptation. You know the best way to resist temptation? Don't be tempted in the first place. You know, if you're on a diet, it's easier to stay on your diet if you don't go to Golden Corral. Right? You, you're on a, I'm on a diet. I'm going to go to Golden Corral, but just have a salad. No, you're not. You, you want to avoid falling off your diet? Don't go there. Go home and eat a salad. That's the same thing. I want to avoid temptation. I, wanna, I don't want to resist it. I need to avoid it. You know, if David... Hadn't been on that roof looking for something to catch his attention, he never would have seen Bathsheba. You know, the best way to not click that image late at night when you're on the internet late by yourself, don't be on the internet alone by yourself. Don't be behind a closed door. Again, I think not just, it's not just for your kids. I think every, everyone who has a smartphone, I don't care what gender you are, should have Covenant eyes installed on it, every tablet. We do it in our house. Our kids hate it, like, well, I can't get on this without, well, I don't care. You shouldn't be allowed to get on that. But they don't have unfiltered access to anything. Why? Because I, I don't want them to say, well, oh, I, I, ha- I can resist this. They're not going to have to resist this They never see it. Oh, well, you're, you're sheltering them. Yeah. That's my job as a parent, to protect them. And to make sure they don't fight the same battles I've had to fight my entire Christian life. To break the chain. So look, you want to avoid falling into sin? Don't be tempted. The best way to not click it is to don't be on the internet alone at night. You know the best way to avoid telling a lie to keep you out of trouble? Don't put yourself in trouble in the first place. When you are tempted, God gives you a way of escape. But he wouldn't have to give you a way to escape if you weren't tempted in the first place. James 1 says this, But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Death comes from sin, which comes from lust, which comes from being tempted, which comes from being drawn away from God. So you you want to avoid death? Avoid sin, but to avoid sin, you got to avoid lust. To avoid lust, you got to avoid temptation. You don't avoid temptation, stay close to God. Say, Well, I I just want to avoid death. Then don't even be tempted. Don't put yourself in a position to be tempted. And look, every one of us is tempted, and we have all these struggles we deal with. We need to not. Of be tempted by it. The best way to keep from sin is to not put yourself in a position to be tempted, but stay close to God. That means you may have to give up some things. Some of you need to get rid of your smartphone. Get a flip phone. Get a get a, a burner phone. I know the drug dealer phones, but you can use them too. Get your little flip phone that don't have internet access. Some of you need to get off of Facebook. See, that seems a little extreme. You know what Jesus said? He said, if your left eye causes you to sin, just, just put a patch over it and, you know, just, just... No, no, no. He said, your eye causes you to sin, gouge that puppy out. Your hand causes you to sin, cut that thing off. Some of us need to get extreme and start cutting some things off. And look, some of us need to have some conversations with our kids and make sure they're not falling into temptation either. Look, I'm gonna read you some some statistics. And again, I'm saying this is not just for for guys. 70% of teen boys and and 35% of teen girls spend 30 consecutive minutes a day looking at pornography online. By the age of 18, 97% of boys and 83% of girls have been exposed to internet pornography. You know what that means? 3% of boys have never seen it by the time they're 18. And 17% of girls. Your kid's probably not the, the, the exception. And don't say, oh, my kid's a great kid. My kid's a great kid. Both my boys are great kids. My daughter's a great kid. I've had trouble with both, with both of them, both my boys, not Lexi yet, oh Lord God, help me. When she turns a teenager, y'all may have to find a new pastor because I'm gonna be in prison for killing somebody. Maybe her, I don't know. But it's like, oh, my kid's the exception. No, they're not. And they may be, Why? why risk it? Guard them. And hey, here's the thing, of adult males, and I think I read it this morning, 45% of adult females admit to looking at pornography weekly. It's not just a men thing. It's not just a teen thing. It's an adult thing. 60% of churchgoers say they view pornography. And here's, here's the real kicker. If you consider yourself a fundamentalist, like, died in the, man, we're, we're fundamentals of the faith, and we're... 91% of fundamentalists struggle with pornography. You know what would help that? Avoid the temptation, having some accountability. Asking God for help. Conquering these sins once for all, instead of just... And here's the problem, especially with pornography, we think it's okay, because no one knows. No one sees what you're doing at home by yourself. No one sees what you're looking at on your phone. Yeah, somebody sees. It's God, and it always displeases the Lord. and it's always going to bring death and destruction. So you may have to start doing some severe things to conquer this. But back to the story. So a year goes by. Uriah's dead, Bathsheba's his wife, the baby's born, He thinks everything's okay. It's gotten over. everything's good, God didn't notice. But then Nathan the prophet comes to him, and Nathan the prophet tells him a story about what happened, something that happened in his king. And look at verse, chapter twelve, verse one. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, and one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding great flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was to come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was close to him. So he says, look, there's two families. This one rich guy, got a lot of sheep. This other poor guy. He's got one little sheep, and it's not even a, it's a pet. You know, it's like some of you, how you treat your dogs, how I treat my dogs. My dogs are, are wonderful. I, love, I like them more than I do my kids sometimes. You know why? They never back talk. When I get home, Abra gets so mad because she's like, whenever you come home, all you do is cuddle with Scarlett. You know why? Because when I get home, Scarlett runs to the bed, gets on the bed, waits for me to come in the bedroom, then jumps on my shoulders and hugs me and kisses me and licks my face and wants to cuddle. I'm like, if you you lick my face when I come in, I'll cuddle with you too, but you don't ever do that. You know, you don't treat me like she treats me. And so, but I mean, it's like people, we love our animals. We love our pets. We cherish them. They're part of the family. This sheep was part of his family. And this rich guy, he has a traveler coming through, and instead of going to get from just a regular sheep who he didn't care about from his flock, he steals this poor guy's pet and kills it and eats it. Look what David says, verse 5. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said unto Nathan, As the Lord liveth, that the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, David is furious at what happened, and he's mad. He goes, this guy, he's going to die for what he did, and his family's going to pay restitution to this poor guy. And then look what Nathan says in verse 7. And Nathan said unto David, thou art the man. That had to hit David like a ton of bricks. Have you ever, let me ask you a question, because I've always wondered this. Have you ever read this story and think, why is Nathan compared the thing with David and Bathsheba to a guy who has a bunch of sheep and a guy who has one little sheep. Why is he doing that? You ever wonder that? Am I the only one? Okay, great. David at this time, and look, I'm not saying this is what we ought to, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not putting my stamp of approval on nothing here. I'm just saying historically, in the Bible, at this time, David had seven wives. You know how many Uriah had? One. David had seven wives that could have fulfilled his desires, but he takes some other guy's wife. He just had one. So he's saying, "So it's okay for me to have seven wives?" No. Your first wife's going to kill you if you bring that up. So, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that's why the convert, the the it's made. So, but uh, David's like a son of a brick. He says, "You're the man." The conviction was unescapable and his actions were inexcusable. He had just condemned himself by his own ruling. Then look at verse number 7. Again, it says, Thou art the man, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel and delivered thee out of the hands of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house, and the master's wives, and thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if it had been too little, I would have uh, given thee more uh, such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to uh, to do evil in his sight, has killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and has taken his wife to be thy wife, and have slain with the sword of the children of Amnon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and has taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives from thine eyes, and give them to thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. And it happened. And for thou didst secretly, I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die, How be it? because by this deed thou hast given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. So God passes his judgment and it's harsh. But here's what it teaches us. You can get forgiveness for your sins. David did. David said, I've sinned against God. And Nathan said, it's forgiven. God's forgiven you. You can get forgiveness for your sins but you still have to suffer the consequences of your sins. His son died. The people lost their trust in him. His family was permanently damaged, and he suffered trauma and fighting. Now, a lot of people confuse forgiveness and consequences. They think if you say you're sorry, then God forgives you, and you won't have to suffer the consequences of what you've did. That's not how it works with God. That's not how it works in life. You always, always, always Reap what you sow. David sought and received forgiveness. He no longer had the guilt and the shame of sin, but he still had the consequences of it. That brings us to our last point. Here's one we're going to close on Exposing sin always leads to healing. For a year, David's sin was hidden. Seems like everything was fine. But read Psalm 51. David says, for that entire year, my soul was eaten up like a cancer. The guilt and the shame of what I had done and trying to hide it from God. I was just, I was far away from God. I was miserable. His kids are alive. His kingdom's intact. Everything's going great. But he's miserable. Then Nathan exposes his sin, he confesses it, he forsakes it, he receives forgiveness, and yeah, his son dies, yeah, his family is destroyed, but in Psalm 51 he says, I received healing, God cleansed me throughly when I confessed my sin. Yeah, there were consequences, but his relationship with God was healed because his sin was exposed. You know, Proverbs 28 tells us anyone who tries to hide their sin, they're not going to prosper. But if they confess it and forsake it, they will receive mercy. Not, you know, a a complete, I'm trying to think of a, oh, if you do a crime and you confess and you talk to somebody and you, uh. Yes! Who said that? Thank you, immunity! You don't get immunity from your sins, you get mercy. David got mercy. Nathan said, hey, God's forgiven you. You're not going to die. Now, personally, if I were David, after what David went through, I'd rather be the one to die than lose a son and watch my family fall apart. But God said, hey, I give you mercy. There's still consequences, but, you have to, you, but there is mercy in your sin. So here's, it's not a question of whether we do or do not sin. It's a question of what we do after we sin. What you do after you sin is the difference between life and death. David's sin was exposed and he suffered because of it, but he also got forgiveness from it and he restored his relationship with God. Exposing his sin and confessing his sin led to healing from his sin. You know, Acts chapter 13 says this, and when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king. To whom also he gave a testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Acts, if you're not, don't know, you don't know Bible timeline, Acts is way after 2 Samuel. After David's committed sin with Bathsheba. After he's killed Uriah to cover it up. After that, God says he's still a man after my own heart. He's still going to be used to bring forth the Messiah. Why? Because he confessed and repented of his sin and it brought healing between him and God. Here, all of us sin. That's a fact. So if you're sitting here singing, well, i never sin. You're lying. We all sin. I don't care who you are. Now, you may think your sin is not as bad as someone else's sin, but in God's eyes it is. We all sin. It's what we do after we sin that matters. We can hide it and cover it up and deal with the death and destruction that it's going to bring, or we can confess it, forsake it, receive forgiveness and mercy. We'll still have consequences, but we'll be restored to our fellowship with God. Now, this story, it stands in stark contrast to the one... We looked at last week. Last week, David's the hero. He's a type of Christ. This week, he's a murdering adulterer trying to cover up his sin. If David can fail, what hope do we have? And that's the point. Our hope is not in ourselves, it's not in our ability to be righteous or some religious or political leader. Our hope is found in the King of Kings. David's failure reminds us that we're looking for someone greater than David. We're looking for Jesus. We need a different king. We need a king that doesn't serve himself or use his power to exploit us, but a king that serves us and uses his power to save us. And we have that in Jesus. He came to serve us, not be served. He came to fight for us not make us fight for him. He died for our sins. He didn't try to cover up his sins because he had none, number one, but he he died openly for our sins. He allowed God to put my sins and your sins on him and die for our sins, and he rose again to redeem us to God the Father. He conquered the power of sin because we couldn't And as we walk with him and we love him. And we get close to Him, sin loses its allure. It loses its luster when we're looking in the face of our Savior. The best way to avoid sin isn't just to avoid temptation, but to stay close to God. We are tempted when we're drawn away, which means the closer we are to Him, the more we love Him, the less we'll be tempted. The less you're tempted, the less you sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.